0: Welcome back to Women in Product Marketing. Today's episode is with Sarah Rosso, the global head of product marketing and growth marketing at CloudBlue. Sarah has the double threat of experience in both B2B and B2C. We talk about how switching between the two means adapting to different sales cycles, buyer personas, and messaging testing methods. In this episode, Sarah elaborates on how to approach leading a team in either sector using examples from her last decade of doing so remotely. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. This podcast is produced by Sharebird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, so things that you liked or things you want to hear more of, please send me a note on LinkedIn or feel free to email podcasts at sharebird.com. All right, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheen from Adobe, and I'm here today with Sarah Rosso, the Global Head of Product and Growth Marketing at CloudBlue. Sarah has experience in both B2B and B2C marketing, leading teams at companies like WordPress, Vizion, and more, and she has such an incredible background. I can't wait to get into it today. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Well, I love reading about your career because it's so interesting. You started in engineering, you lived in Italy for 13 years, you moved your way into the agency world with marketing. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and then how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, uh, I started as a network engineer, you know, working at HP, being part of like the IPv6 team at the time, which felt very far away, but now I think it's still a little bit far for people to understand IPv6. But when I moved to Italy, you know, got a job through a technical position, but because I was a native English speaker and really digital was blowing up at the time, doing a lot of that in my spare time, moved into more of a digital role. And from there, just really started getting closer to what the customer needs, really getting into understanding what is the path that they're on, and why are we building this with a design agency? And then I was getting very involved in the WordPress community at the time and realized there was a company doing this full time. So I joined Automatic when there were about 50 people and stayed there till there were 1,200. So being a really early hire, I got to help build and scale teams on the enterprise side as like the first non sales, non engineer hire. But then about five years in, I switched to consumer product, wordpress.com, which 10 years old didn't have a full time marketer. So it's actually the first full time marketer. and built a lot of really interesting and cool things there as well.
0: Wow. I love WordPress. So well done. And I think they have great marketing now. So you must have done a lot to turn it around. That's awesome.
1: Well, they've had a great brand for sure.
0: They definitely have. Can you tell us a little bit more about Cloud Blue and what your responsibilities look like today, especially stepping into this new role as more all-encompassing marketing?
1: Yeah. So CloudBlue is a startup within a very large recognizable enterprise, a distributor that saw the writing on the wall that they were going to have to shift into digital. So they wanted to build this marketplace that they could help do digital subscriptions and empower their partners to do that as well as deliver to enterprises. And then there's a tech stack underneath all of that. So like, we're kind of like the AWS, this huge multi-level marketplace that can also be used by other customers to run their own ecosystems. So if they want to deliver things digitally and have subscriptions, they can do that. But we also have some other pieces of our technology that help with
0: the automation as well.
1: So at CloudBlue, I was leading product marketing. Now I lead all of marketing and I have a pretty good team under me.
0: That's fantastic. How exciting. This one's really fun. And do you think that your team is more full stack marketers or are they more specialized? How do you organize the team and how do you kind of think about the way that they're operating?
1: Well, I'm lucky enough to have a big enough team that I can let them specialize. And they definitely trying to understand what they enjoy working on was one of the first things I had to do when inheriting a team. But how I've tried to, to organize them now, and, I, and actually, if anyone's listening, this was one of the hardest things to find as a manager of managers is there's very little information out there. How do you organize a product marketing organization? I had so many different opinions and I looked at how I wanted to structure things. But what I really ended up doing was is looking about the strengths of the people that I had on my team and how to really grow the function. So having multidisciplinary or multifaceted was super important to me. And I think the stage that we're at, you know, my startup, we're really still a startup. It's only about, the company's about three years old that it's been selling publicly. You want people who can shift and change as the product changes, as we discover new segments, as we discover new use cases, maybe after, as we close one down, because maybe the product has shifted direction or something. So I have a more senior team, I would say than probably normal, because I need them to have that breadth of experience.
0: And this is your third time, I believe, actually creating and designing and scaling a product marketing and larger marketing team. Is there anything that you've done differently this third time around than say you did your very first time?
1: Yeah, so I believe this time around I've inherited a little bit more so and I've inherited a tech stack. I think that's probably one of the more difficult things is how do you adapt to existing organization in a lot of ways. But I think one of the things I've been trying to emphasize most of all is knowledge transfer across the individuals and across the team and trying to make sure that as their leader, I'm not a a point of failure because I can see that when you become the leader, you can a lot of times be the bottleneck of information and I want the peer sharing to be really strong. So that's the thing I've been working on. I had to actively work on the most with this team. And I think really one of the things I try, I love process, but let me be clear when I say process, I want processes to scale, not to control. I think if you're using processes to slow or to control something to the point that you can really slow down the organization, but if you're using something to scale because it's sharing information or it's, you know, speeding something up, I think that's when you need to look at what's been done before and what you can do to really speed things up.
0: On this idea of knowledge transfer, which I really like that you went into that because I still think even with everyone working full stack, working on similar problems, I noticed that in large organizations too, that not everyone's sharing. Is there anything tactically that you've done to promote that knowledge share or transfer or really espouse this notion of sharing information between everyone on the PMM team? What's worked for you?
1: Yeah. And I mentioned this a little bit on the other podcast. I don't want to be too repetitive, but I think there's three things. I'll do them really quickly. One is access to information. So can you at best work in public? At best you can. So picking folder, picking a place where you shouldn't worry about who can stumble on the information you're sharing and having that be just a routine. So for my team, we have a folder that everyone puts instead of their individual OneDrives drives or the individual, they just start there. So what that means is sharing building, discovering in the team itself is a lot easier, especially across time zones. So when someone goes to sleep, I'm not worried about if they've shared that document. So access to information is one. I think also that habit of knowledge sharing, do you share notes back, you know, on a regular basis? I try to do that. So I try to set by example by leading a couple notes, even to share information so that asynchronously people can see those. And then the richness of asynchronous discussion is something else where do you have a place where you can have discussions happening that don't have to be super immediate? and I think this is the hardest one probably to solve in most of these organizations because they haven't thought about the infrastructure or the way to encourage and we're really fast at the immediate things and immediate answers and then email can be too linear but how do you actually encourage people across time zones to weigh in on something when maybe they feel 12 hours later the decision's already been made so that's something I try to leave space for and I try to set by example there.
0: That's great. Yeah. At a prior startup, I remember when we brought Slack on board for the first time and it felt like all of these decisions were happening in the Pacific time zone with the people that happened to be in that channel. And we had to kind of take a step back and realize, okay, this isn't necessarily the way broader decisions should be made. We need to consider all of the stakeholders that should be involved. People that don't have a moment to be checking in on Slack right now, it has to be a little bit more organized than that. So it is interesting. how did you? If I
1: can ask, like, how did you solve that?
0: We kind of made a decree, I can't think of a better word, but because a top down recommendation that for decision making for bigger ticket items and for things that are having to do with product build, product timelines, shipping, things like that. They couldn't be made on a Slack meeting. It had to be something that had a 24 hour review cycle, or we had to have a meeting with all the right stakeholders in it to really decide on it because a lot of things were just happening in it. I think people thought it was so great at first because all of these decisions were being made and we can move and, and move so quickly, but it was really hard to keep up with everything. And there wasn't the documentation and there wasn't the right thought behind it a lot of times. So we Kind of put yeah. like a leveling on the decisions that could and could not be made <laughs> just using Slack as a channel. So it was a little hard. It was definitely a little culture shock and a little bit of rebounding there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I can imagine. I mean, as a leader, I'm also you know one of the things I'm also saying is if we did make a decision, like can we tell the rest of the group and can we give them the context and can we like complete that loop regularly so that even they feel looped in in a way, even if they're not being asked to make the decision, they understand some of the context, they understand and just like regularly no, I'm not missing out. They don't feel like they're going to be at least left out of all the important conversations and they're just being in the really low level ones. I think that's important for kind of lower parts of the organization.
0: Yeah, I agree. Just giving the understanding of who made the decision, why, what were the factors? I think that goes a long way one thing I was really interested in talking to you about is that you have worked in B2B and B2C, which is often rare because sometimes, you know, people get really pigeonholed or siloed in one area <laughs> or the other. What would you say is the difference between B2B and B2C marketing and how do you approach each differently?
1: So, and I think at some point we probably need to distinguish between like a pure SaaS product. And because I think as a B2B marketer with a SaaS product, you have shorter cycles than, even though they may feel like they're longer, depending on the buying, you know, the buying process, you may have shorter cycles and more interaction where a product that maybe is a little bit more on-premise or something, I think your customers, you actually have an additional layer of customers, which become your inner teams and partners, right? So your sales team, your product team become really your first level of customers, right? Like the things that I'm making, does it enable them to do their job because they're actually a little bit closer to the customer depending on the product. For B2C, a lot more instant gratification in a way. And you also have a lot less of a chance to convince them, right? Maybe you actually have a 30 second buying cycle, right? Did this messaging hit on the moment that they landed on this webpage? And if not, you may have lost them forever. So depending, I think there's kind of like a multi-layer here. One is like the product itself, how easy and the price. Point right, and you know I've worked at WordPress.com, so pretty low price point. You know when we're talking about a couple of dollars a month or something, we're starting to get into app territory of you know where does this fall into that person's buying consideration? When you start going up the scale, and you know that as well, how many is there, are they buying for an organization? So I think you shift from the B to C and kind of like understanding the jobs to be done that they need, and then shifting from B to B is the buying personas and the different stakeholders. Even in the buying process, you may have a champion. You may have someone who actually owns the contract who who has nothing to do with the product itself. So you have all these different layers. I think it starts to get really interesting because it's multifaceted at that point. You really have to plan for a lot more of those layers, internal partners, multiple layers of buyers, and really what each of them is going to resonate with.
0: That's really interesting. And I love how you described your sales people and the kind of frontline folks as the first customer zero. You need to really treat them as a customer and making sure that they understand the value They understand the message when you're working with that. And so it's just a matter of segmentation, really thinking about who you're marketing to and building out the plan. With something as tactical as let's say messaging, do you take different liberties with the consumer side than you would with the business side? Or do you think about the motivations of the person or how do you approach messaging on advertisements or a website or any of the different channels that PMM might touch?
1: Yeah. And that's really interesting. I think like, again, in B2C, you may have much shorter sales, like the sales cycle, or at least the buying period. Like I've run A-B tests where like I would get to a significance in a couple hours or days. I mean, and where you can really test and you get that immediate feedback on what's working and what's resonating. So I think the testing part of it and having that It's almost a luxury now that I'm back in B2B. I see the B2C in some ways, like there's this luxury in some ways of getting that instant gratification on understanding what's working, what isn't and testing things. I just think like the ability to test is so much easier and you can have things going in multiple, even in multiple, uh, in parallel. I've run some multivariate A-B tests before and it's not always recommended, but I go, if you have the volume, then it's actually really interesting to get that kind of feedback. So the same with messaging is, you know if I have the volume to do that, then I can actually test and See what resonates. I can throw out something and then go with what works. So that side of it can be really interesting. But yeah, that's a really interesting question. That's really
0: helpful. Yeah, I think certainly I felt that too with B two C. You have more opportunities to test. Things move a little bit faster. Where B two B, it's frightening to test your pricing with a customer when you maybe get ten customers a year. Especially in that enterprise SaaS world you were talking about a little bit more. So the opportunities for testing, lean into it on the B two (laughs) C side. Is what you're saying. Try to test at all points, but really link to it when you have the data. That's a really good takeaway. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit. I think this kind of relates to both the consumer and the business side, but you have a product marketing guilty pleasure. Can you talk a little bit about this? Something you love to do and lean in on a little bit more than the average bear.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love research. I love talking to customers. I love understanding customer bases too. So even like aggregate experiences, aggregate, like understanding insights. So, you know, having been on the ground up when, you know, WordPress.com was building like a data practice, you know, being there early, it's not just like, well, that's data team's problem. It's like, no, no, like here's what we need to be tracking. Here's the events like at every event level, you know, and some of the things I've really learned, which has been really helpful in other organizations to be like, Hey, where's our data? What are we tracking? You know, and that kind of thing. So that's one is those aggregate insights about, do we know what our customer base is doing? And then starting to dig into the actual quantitative and qualitative. So I love blending those two. I've enjoyed doing quite a bit of surveying in my career and like blending the hard data with like the qualitative side, which is humanizing it for people. When like, when you put a number in front of them and say, well, 20 23% said this, but they're telling you in all caps what that means and does hit home quite a bit. So I like that blend of quantitative and qualitative as well to tell a story.
0: And I am a research geek too. So I love thinking about this and building out different plans. And I also know that you're very interested in jobs to be done, which is kind of a research methodology, usually in interview format, where you really get to the heart of what someone is using your product for. The famous example is Clayton Christensen's milkshake example. They're not using it as a milkshake to drink. It's something that people buy before a long commute to actually keep them interested Is one of the examples. So I'd love to hear more about how you've used jobs to be done in some of your research? Has it been more qualitative? Have you figured out how to make it more quant with a survey approach? Would love to hear how you've implemented it in your own research.
1: Well, I think we are constantly trying to understand that because I think one of the things, and definitely again, back to the WordPress, is we saw people using WordPress for websites well before it was something that was embraced as like WordPresses for websites, right? It started out as a blog software and yeah. actually, you know, it started as blogging. And really over time, it's like, well, actually, like quite a few people are doing this and quite a few people are using it as a website. They just want it for this sort of thing. And so I was talking, you know, I was pretty involved in the community and, and talking to quite a few people. So, for me, when you're talking about jobs to be done, I go, I want to look to customers to tell us the bleeding edge, the next direction on what the product might be solving for them. So, I think like you have to be ready to ask those questions and come in without assumptions of, okay, well, here's of these jobs to be done, which one are actually like, no, like, what are the alternatives? I think so, starting with, what are the alternatives you considered when you, you know, that in the famous examples, I think they're like, well, what are the things when they're talking about breakfast or not breakfast, right? It's like, well, can I hold it in my hand? I think that was another thing. It's like, is it something <laughs> I can hold in my hand? And while I'm driving. And so the job to be done was like, can I find something that's portable that fills me up, right? And that's not, they were trying to think about breakfast, which is a little bit different, right? They're trying to sustain themselves during these long drives, like you said. And so I go, again, it's like understanding how they're using it today, even if it wasn't intended to be the way that you intended it to be. And really under- so I think it's that openness and like constantly surveying and listening to how people are using products is really important. And again, the job to be done may not be one that becomes a core job that you want to highlight, but I think it's really fascinating. I love to see when people are using, I really like multifaceted products like Notion and Airtable. Those are really super exciting to me because I want to see how they get used in a way that no one ever intended them to be
0: that's so interesting thanks for sharing the WordPress example especially I really think that is such a huge insight and I didn't know that actually because I think so much about WordPress being this website company and where the first place I would go to build a website so another area that I really wanted to get into with you today is leading remotely because you are someone really unique that's had over 10 years of experience working remotely so I'd love to hear some of your favorite tips about about working remotely, leading remotely, what it's been like to maybe hire remotely, anything that you could really share, because I think all of us can relate to the fact that we're a year into this. I know from our perspective, we're thinking about doing more of a hybrid approach back. So I think that remote perspective is going to still be there. So I'd love to hear what tips you have that might be things you haven't thought of before.
1: Yeah, and I think I've talked a little bit about the hybrid approach. If you're thinking about hybrid, you need to plan to be remote. So if you're designing an organization that's gonna be hybrid, you need the whole organization to be thinking as if it's remote because what'll happen is the days people are in the office, they'll be concentrating certain types of work, right? And maybe not documenting and maybe not, like how do you keep the continuity, right? When you have this hybrid approach. So I think the same things that I was talking about before in terms of access to information, asynchronous rich discussion, and that knowledge transfer those have to just be things you do as an organization, regardless of you're in the office, you're not in the office, you have an in-person meeting or whatever. So I think that's something that I hope. And I really, I'm encouraged by a lot of the organizations thinking about a hybrid approach going back. I think that's going to be great to give that flexibility to people and to let them design a little bit more the kind of environment that maybe makes sense for the business, right? And not just for an office space. But I think you're going to have to be actually just as rigorous as if you were 100% remote, maybe more because you might see people just being like, okay, we'll just talk about it in the office tomorrow instead of maybe doing what they could have done anyway and advancing the work. So I'm curious to see how that actually ends up working for a lot of these organizations. At the same time, I haven't been holding my breath this whole time. So, you know, I'm going into my 11th year working remotely and I have just said, this is probably like, I'm kind of just saying, this is how I think it's going to be for a while. I'm remote to the rest of my team my boss is in Europe. Most of my team is in Europe. And so it's been good to be able to work across time zones. People, But I think if you start with that thought of how have we set up our team for success, one, if you add any additional people who are not near the core office, you already have the infrastructure that's ready for that, right? Those habits, the knowledge sharing, and and it shouldn't be as painful to keep that going.
0: That's a really good point. And I feel like we've all proven this year that we can be productive. People can, you know, show up to their job, not in their pajamas, at least, you know, from the top up. (laughs) And I love the knowledge sharing and the documentation aspect. And I think that's great to think about as a foundation. I hadn't really heard anyone talk about it like that. It sort of seems like the hybrid model could work in that you have those serendipitous moments and some of the meetings for some of the bigger decision-making, but you should still keep documenting documenting and still make sure to continue how that rolls out. Yeah.
1: I call them the three D's and this is something I've talked about, but the decisions, the documentations and the discussion, those are all things you need to be thinking about. How do you enable those in a blended organization? And my advice is as public as possible, you know, as consistent as possible, right? Like where do we have discussions? Where do we document things? Where do we decide things and how do we continuously? It's just a wheel. It's a wheel. You got to keep it going. You got to make it visible and transparent to people. Otherwise people will feel that they're missing out on things and they're being left out. Or in the worst case scenario, which is depending on the organization, that they stop the work because they aren't getting access to the information that they need. That's my fear in the most part. It's not just you want people to build on your work. This is what this is about. You want people to build on the decisions and the work that you're creating.
0: That's such a good point. I love that, the 3Ds. So I'm going to bring that to the <laughs> to the organization for sure. I think the thing I miss the most about collaborating in person is whiteboarding together because Mm -hmm. I have not found something that really replaces that at least that I have tried a few mural
1: mural and Miro are okay but I think it's you need someone facilitating too I think in the breakouts and things like that's just definitely it's a little bit harder to make that rich
0: yeah, definitely. It's almost like you need one that will transcribe what you write on the whiteboard in real life to the cloud. So then you can actually share it with all of your remote coworkers. or I will probably just take a picture of it and then take the notes. <laughs>
1: Well, one thing (laughs) thing we did do that was in automatic in those really important strategic discussions, we actually had a person, not part of the team that was deciding, but someone that came in from maybe an adjacent part, like a designer or somebody that came in who was the facilitator. And they were there to facilitate it so that you as a leader could be present and not worry about the note-taking and not worry about the timing and not worry about that stuff. So I think thinking of those kind of creative ways to let you focus and then make sure that there's this continuity, I think, is important.
0: That's such a great point. Going back to basics, bring a scribe in, have someone take notes, set an agenda, all of those great points. That's awesome. Another topic I really wanted to talk to you and get your perspective on is networking. And I know that we've talked about networking a bit on the podcast and different topics related to that, but you have a really interesting approach and you've had a lot of success with something called lunch club that I hadn't heard about. Can you tell everyone a little bit about this and how it's really impacted the way that you have networked with not only women in business, but also with men. I'd love to share that with the listeners.
1: Yeah, well, let me start by the premise of like, I think networking is incredibly important and I've had many years where I've talked to people about it, but I think if you approach it from a point of view of generosity that you're gonna give first and you're gonna be available, like it takes away any stigma from what networking could be. So let's start with that as a premise of what I think networking is. It's community, it's generosity. And I've done you know some mentoring even recently with some other product marketers and stuff. So I think it's part of who I am. So having worked in remote for so many years and having some young children and it makes it hard to pop up to Palo Alto for a glass of wine, which I did do. And it was not a very good event. Networking can be difficult for us. And so I'm going to plug Lunch Club just because I think it's been a really interesting way of doing things. I mean, if you just think about it, it's like match.com for networking. So you say I'm available. This is the things I'm interested in. You tell them on your calendar when you're available and they do the rest and they match you up. And so especially that calendar dance can be so tiring, especially with busy people, people who have a lot of responsibility. I think it's really great to do that. So I've been doing that for probably nine or 10 months now. I try to do at least one a week, but you can do, I think you can do up to three. And I meet a lot of really interesting people because I think 80% of networking is does the other person want to talk to me? (laughs) So that takes care of that. But I think I was doing some reflecting on this recently and you mentioned that I lived in Italy for 13 years. And let me be clear, I have some amazing male colleagues from Italy. I have some amazing male friends from Italy. I've also met quite a few creepers in Italy and everywhere. And I think as a woman in technology, a woman, you know, in general in business, like at some point when someone's connecting with you or trying to connect with you, you don't have a hundred percent assurance of what the purpose is, right? Let's be honest with you, you know, like, and maybe it's only one out of 20 times, but that one time makes you naturally a little bit reticent to do it. So I think the, one of the things I've really enjoyed about Lunch Club, and I think we should, since this is women in product marketing, we should talk about this. Men are still in most of the positions of power where we want to be, where we've talked about sponsorship. You mentioned men internship on this podcast, but we should be talking about sponsorship a little bit more about that means bringing people with you, pushing for them to get into rooms that you're not in, et cetera, lunch club and any other kind of networking that where you can network with men, I think is really important. And so that's been something I've noticed is that like, it's really opened up me to network with men with literally no problem of wondering like, why are they in this call? They're in the call to network with you. And I think I really appreciate that as something maybe they didn't intend, but it's been really great. I know a lot of people network organically and you may have an amazing network and you're meeting a lot of men and women, but I think not everyone has that luxury. And I think it's a really great way to take advantage of that.
0: I think that's so great. And I'm so glad that you brought it up. And I was saying before we started recording that it kind of brought up for me that I really only try to network with women at this point. And I hadn't really realized that, you know, I have colleagues, of course, wonderful male colleagues that I work with and wonderful male sponsors and mentors that I've worked with, but I haven't been that active in engaging with male networking. (laughs) So I know, and it sucks
1: because this is important. It's important to our careers. And there's not really like an easy, there's no good handbook on it. Right. And I think, again, let's be clear, all of our male allies listening, it's not like, thank you for being a good ally. Thank you for being interested. But I go, there are some people out there that it's not always a pleasant experience. And that, you know, over time, you get a little bit tired of trying to guess if this is going to be the right or the wrong one. So
0: It is tiring. I totally agree. Well, I have a question about lunch club. Do people actually eat lunch on these? (laughs) Or are you kind of awkwardly like eating the salad and covering your teeth?
1: (laughs) So I believe they started as in-person meetings in the Bay Area. And then when the pandemic hit, they shifted to digital, but I selfishly, and by the way, that's another amazing thing about this is that I've met people in all time zones because of it. And I definitely would not have had access to someone in Seattle, someone in Chicago, someone in Boston with this kind of ease if I hadn't had a tool like this, so it's going to sound very, and if everyone, anyone listening, if you have other networks like this, please let us know about them. I mean, I'm not trying to just pitch lunch club, but I go, this is the kind of thing that I think we need as women and we need, you know, as professionals. And I really appreciate having it and I'm happy to give an invite code. It's free, but
0: whatever you want. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to check this out. This is awesome. Well, a few rapid fire questions for you now, Sarah, if you will. So I'd love to ask, what is the best way to find a mentor? Would you use something like this networking? Is it someone that you would tap from your career, a cold call? What's the best way you think to find a mentor?
1: I think it's very difficult to find a mentor. So my best mentors have really been peers and I've really appreciated learning as we kind of level each other up. I have written about also having like a personal board of directors. So I think this is also something to think about that you want like functional or area specific people. So like if you know that you're weak in finance, but you have a friend who is really strong in that, they become part of your board of directors for finance. They work hard, you know, so you kind of fill in those weak spots and then you really have like, you're not looking to one person to really solve. Everything for you. You have this kind of like Swiss Army knife of people. So I actually look to do that. And I have people that I go, okay, if I have a product question, I'm going to ask this person. If I have a scaling question or a startup or I have a finance, and that's what I try to aim to do. It's been a lot of peers, though, I will say.
0: I really love that idea. The board of directors, that's really clever. I think that that makes it more well rounded as well, not as much pressure on one or two people. What would you say is the one thing that has been the most important in growing your career?
1: Yeah, I definitely, we've talked so much about it, but I think networking and, you know, I've done a lot of writing too. So I think like a lot of times I've put out the direction that I've wanted to go personal branding, you know, trying to make a change ahead of me wanting to make that change. And so I think like, I know I worked for a blogging company for quite a long, I still think that the written word is a really powerful way to spread ideas and knowledge. So I think that actually has been really helpful for me as well as networking. So probably writing and networking.
0: That's fantastic. And last question for you, why product marketing?
1: I love the intersectionality, if I can use that word, hopefully appropriately here is, you know, just being embracing the generalist side of me. And, you know, I have an MBA, but also just like, I'm curious about operations and finance. And, and I like knowing how I fit into all of it. Right. And so I think as a product marketer, you're thinking about a lot of those aspects, of the market and the appetite and the pricing and how that might affect the messaging and how the right medium to contact the customer. And, you know, so, I think there's all these multi like the product roadmap and understanding, you know, lead times and how that will affect how you plan out your marketing. I think it's just a really interesting way to bring all that knowledge together. So I feel pretty comfortable here.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I love your experience. Thank you so much for all the amazing info that you've shared with our listeners today. I think everyone's going to get a lot out of this. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you, Mary. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. This podcast is produced by Sharebird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, so things that you liked or things you want to hear more of, please send me a note on LinkedIn or feel free to email podcasts at sharebird.com. That wraps another fantastic episode of Women in Product Marketing. Be sure to subscribe and share Women in Product Marketing with someone you think will love it. Next week, I get the chance to speak with Kelly Farrell, who was awarded PMM Newcomer of the Year in 2020. Thank you so much for all of your support and catch you next week.